Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. All right, what the heck's going on, everybody? I got Jimmy to my right, Eric Barber across the table from me, and special guest, repeat guest, Pat Durkin, who is always a pleasure, always so insightful. And frankly, right now, though, I am having a hard time sitting here because we are at, the I don't peak. know, uh, yeah, are we, we're at essentially <laughs> the peak of the rut. We're in the office. Eric killed a buck like two days ago. My my phone is abuzz with Paul text Neese messages. killed a buck like yesterday, apparently. Yeah, uh, just a giant. Kenny killed a really nice buck. Everybody, you know, text messages are flying in. Send Venmo for more license dollars yes. because we need more licenses. Oh, yeah, Eric's having a complete <laughs> conundrum over here over the fact of whether he should go get an Illinois deer license or not and, yes. and potentially risk his wife leaving him. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) Make good choices, and you know what I mean by that. Anyway, hence the topic for today's discussion. We're going to talk about the whitetail rut and all of its intricacies. Pat, uh, I'll let you introduce yourself a little bit, but Pat Durkin, longtime outdoor writer, Wisconsin outdoor writer, interviewed, I'd assume, a lot of really interesting folks about the rut over the years, and we want to learn more about it so we can hit the field here this week. Yep. And go get us some deers. Well, regarding the rut, I I, um, I was editor of Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine back in the 90s, from 91 through 2001. And, you know, I guess the thing that always kills me about magazine production was that, you know, you have this, um, I think we had eight publications a year. And you always had, you know, it was, real, it was just the same thing every year. And you got to get into that. That. I think it was always the October issue was always our rut issue, mm. and but but deer and deer hunting. That one thing I always liked about and why I liked editing that magazine and being part of the early days of it was um, the guys that that started. It, um, the guy's name was Al Hofacker and Jack Brower, and they had the good sense to um, bring into their into the magazine uh, Charlie Alshimer out in New York State and uh, Richard Smith up in the UP. But um, then by the time I arrived, my, my big coup as editor in 1993, John Ozolga, this great researcher over in Michigan who'd been at the, the Cusinog. Um, it's like a big one-mile enclosure up in the UP, Upper Peninsula of Michigan. He did all sorts of rut research over the years, and the rut's timing, licking branches, scrapes, rubs, all that kind of stuff. Especially scrapes, he did a lot of stuff on that hmm. and, and different treatments on, on scrapes. So anyways, the rut was always it was always a big focus of those fall issues. And then you even get into the whole discussions of the second rut. And then you get one thing that was fun about um, doing, doing that work was I got to meet these researchers from down south. And one of them was a guy named Larry Marchington who was in, at the University of Georgia, and he'd done a lot of the good scrape research back in the 70s and brought, brought that along and had some of these early theories on how deer interact at scrapes. And I remember interviewing him one time and asking him, well, what do you think about the second rut? You know, this supposedly that in the I first never rut, even heard of this before. Mm-hmm. This is baffling. Mm-hmm. And it's this big, you know, rut, and then there's a, the does and, and the sometimes fawns, female fawns from the, um, that year's crop, would come in the estrus for the first time. And I always remember Larry <laughs> saying, the second rut is a creation of outdoor writers. <laughs> <laughs> he said, that, yeah, it's happened, but it just 
it's so he said it's so rare. It's nothing nothing that you should really ever bank on. And you can if you're out in the woods in early December, where we are now right now, you might get that occasional um, doe coming into estrus. But typically, the does get bred that first time around. There's very few of them that don't get bred because there's usually enough bucks running around in October to to plant the seed. And and if anything, I could babble all day about the rut and breeding with deer, but. As time went on, they could start doing real genetic research on these deer and track their offspring. They were finding that some of these does were carrying around the offspring of two different bucks. You know, in that 24-hour window that they, that they had to breed, they, they weren't exactly... Um, Monogamous? Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Good yeah, way they, of putting that. Yeah, <laughs> and, it, and then they found, find, too, that... Um, a lot of the bucks in the breeding aren't always the biggest bucks around. They're the ones, they're the opportunists who work their way in there. When their buck chases off a, a second buck, a little yearling buck will sneak in and breed the doe and then get out get out of there before the big buck comes back. So there's all these intricacies that we've um, learned over the years. And wow. It, it, it's, it's fun stuff to talk about. It's well, good it's, strategy. It's mm-hmm. like a complete free-for-all almost. It's just out there. It's what it seems like. And everybody always gets... You know, it's funny around the office here. I have been noticing that an equally or or a change of equal magnitude has been occurring in Eric, biologically and, and physiologically. I believe, uh, probably as much so as the deer have been undergoing, because the guy has been off his rocker in the last week. It's just all of a sudden I just see gotta a get new. In the woods. Yeah, you yeah. can just. He's yeah. got that itch. He's kind of a little twitchy. Yep. He's very animated. Yeah, it, it is a magical, magical time of year. It's perfect. It is. It's a time that we all wait for all year long. Mm-hmm. It's it always baffles me. I can't. I feel like in one of our podcasts prior, I've mentioned this too. But just the fact that when you see deer, a lot of people will say you'll shoot a buck and you say, "Oh, I think this is on a two-year-old buck," or "This one's a three-year-old buck." There's no. There's like never a time where you would say, oh, I think this one might be like three and a half, mm-hmm. or uh, maybe I shouldn't say there's never a time where you'd say that, but they all basically are all born within a couple weeks of each other, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You know, in the spring, isn't yep. it? Right, yep. Well, I always it's feel just, like it all happens, like all the deer are that way. Yep. It's crazy. Yep. And going even back to what you alluded to there a little bit, Pat, with, you know, talking about Charlie Alzheimer's work. He did a lot kind of even around like moon based oh, right, stuff, correct? Right, right. And and that's what's so interesting to me because like Jimmy, as you're talking about that, like you can almost attribute to like you know, my wife's a nurse and she always says that on on nights when you get a full moon, people act up. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, it's 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 interesting to apply that to deer hunting. And I know Charlie Alzheimer had some awesome research that he dedicated a lot of years to mm-hmm. that you would probably be able to speak to a lot better than than I can. I'd be happy to. The thing I'd say right away is that we had a real dispute right from the start with Charlie and John Ozoga. Ozoga really thought Charlie was just, you know, not even in the ballpark with that stuff. Yeah. He really did not agree with it. He said that, you know, that the, the rut's based on photo period, basically day length. And if you go back in time, you watch for fawns drop, it's the same real tight window every spring yeah. it's not varying by three weeks like charlie's predictions were showing and he really um it, it was actually a little personal i mean charlie's passed away now and john's still around i always felt i remember having conversations with charlie about um he was kind of hurt that i didn't just say that no we're all gonna buy into the, his theory 
and make that the, the magazine's uh, focus, and it's it's what it would push. And I, and I said, Charlie, you know, this is I look at Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine as being the, the free marketplace for deer hunting ideas, mm-hmm. right? And and that you know we can have we're big enough, we're confident enough, we can have disagreements between our staff, mm-hmm. our staff writers, and Ozolga has. You know, he's really one of the top deer researchers this country has produced in deer. Mm-hmm. So how can I discount that man's profession? Whereas for you, it's not your profession. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. but it's but it's still it was a but it still Charlie had these. I thought it was really interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of guys swore by it. And a lot of guys didn't. But um, I know Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine had a calendar. I'm not sure they still do it or not. But um, Charlie had predicted you know the rut sequences yeah. for for years. And then Deer and Deer Magazine would sell this calendar based off of Charlie's predictions. Yep. And it was it was interesting stuff, and it was it wasn't um, just all Charlie's. It was uh, another biologist. It was actually a biologist from um, at that time Maine. Um, got Wayne Larouche was the man's mm-hmm. name, and Wayne's actually working as a. He might be retired now, but um, yeah, I have to fact check myself here. But I know I, I just saw him a couple of years ago at one of the Deer conferences. He's working okay. in Pennsylvania, and Wayne really believed. And Charlie kind of Charlie and him kind of co- collaborated on that, so it wasn't like Charlie was just off in his own little world. He was basing it off um, an Eric man's um, biological background, yeah. his research. So, so anyway, it, it's in my opinion, my my views have come to the point where I did a recent article for Meat Eater about lunar stuff, mm-hmm. hmm. and I interviewed um, one of the guys I interviewed was, was Grant Woods, mm-hmm. and Grant back in back in my day, you know, in the mid nineties, that deer and deer hunting. We originally worked with Grant. Grant had been doing this research where he had a bunch of hunters out in three, things like three different parts of the country. Every time they go out, they'd be lock, locking in on uh, logging in their their um, data, logging in when they're hunting, what the moon phase was. And Grant had figured out all these different. When the moon goes across the sky, it doesn't just follow the same pattern every day. It's it's moving over, over the course of the year, up and down in that horizon, and it's how far it is from the Earth. Right, in any given time, so it's very. And that has to do with the Earth tilting on its axis, right. mostly, right? Yeah, I think it's that, and plus, I think the Moon's trajectory actually does change. Hmm. Oh, okay. But I, I don't. <laughs> Grant knows all that stuff. But Grant's Grant had this theory where he has given, given based on the lunar stuff, where he was getting like a seventy percent success rate in predicting when they when these people would see deer, and he's getting he thought he's really getting to narrow down and nailed down mm-hmm. to uh, making it real science because that's what Grant is is science. He's a you know deer biologist, a doctorate in, in wildlife management, and well, he um, came up with this chart. Then I think it's called the Deer Activity Index. And we published that in Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine. We did stories out like Grant wrote. We published it. I mean, piped it up on our covers and yeah. did all sorts of publicity on it, and really felt good about the whole thing. He did that for a year, and he was even presenting the stuff to scientific um, conferences, and because he was that confident that he was getting on to getting into this stuff and getting this nailed down. Then he told me, and this is for my meat eater article just this past year. He said, and then GPS collars came along. He said, and then then I realized I don't know what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> he said, when you can actually follow a deer's movements all day long. And it's activity all day long. Just because we're not seeing it doesn't mean it's not doing stuff out there in the woods. Yeah. Right. right. And they started to realize that anything you do that's based on obs- your own observations is going to be biased because you're going to be putting yourself in positions where you're going to see, you're, where you're most likely to see deer. Yep. And when they aren't mm-hmm. there, well, they're doing, they're probably still doing other stuff. So anyway, yeah. Grant did that for one year. We did this chart with us. 
Then he just kind of quietly disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I finally got around there in, in, interviewing him just recently. This is like 20 years after the fact. And I said, Grant, whatever happened to that directivity index? He just kind of you know, sheepishly said, you know, I was wrong. Yeah. Was totally yeah. wrong. <laughs> I've, I've always been curious, though. You know, you talk, like, some people, moved, I know some guys that, like, they are yeah. bought in. Yeah. Like, oh, definitely. The Kool-Aid is gone. They you, finished yeah. it a long time You'll ago. never convince them otherwise. Right. And then, you know, other folks that are like, nope, it's a yep. bunch of, you know, hooey. But my one question would be, like, with that theory, what is it that they think is increasing or decreasing that activity? Like, and I guess my question is, like, I've thought, like, okay, you get a super bright full moon, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's almost... You know, even as you a can human, walk we'll, around. yeah, we can walk around. You can see good. You know, I've always mm-hmm. assumed that maybe deer or you know elk or whatever the, they are mm-hmm. possibly more comfortable in feeding more at night, and so maybe they're going to be less active during the day. Mm-hmm. Or is it somehow that pe- they think the the moon and where it's at is affecting the polarity of the Earth? And yeah, uh, I mean, it affects the tides. Which, when you think about how big and powerful the ocean is, right, and you're like, well, mm-hmm. if a moon can affect sure. that, yep. how could it maybe not affect? Deer uh, behavior. Deer who yeah. would get swept away in an ocean, you know, or something yeah. like that. <laughs> well, and then related, unrelated, but I know guys that are way bought into, like, Rising musky moons. fishermen and, like, moon overhead, yep, moon underfoot. underfoot. So, oh, yeah. Even Larry was mentioning that on our Fishing yeah. 101 podcast. He was saying if you if you wake up on a morning where you can still see the moon in the morning and the sun is coming up on the other side, that's a good day to go yeah. fishing. That's and, what he said. And huh. you'll you'll hear deer hunters refer to that the same time uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum when the moon is rising as the sun is going down. That's a good evening hunt. Mm-hmm. They'll they'll call that. And there's even a term like red moon or something. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard hunter's moon. Yeah. Well, uh, what the heck's a hunter's moon? Hunter's moon is uh, the October moon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, I think it's the October moon, but. I believe so, because I, I think yeah. the rutting moon is the one that we're about to see on November 12th, which is the, the full first okay. full moon that occurs in November. <laughs> Mark's got the Yeah, Mark. <laughs> get him in the woods. I swear, you get those, like, daily, just any time oh, people bring up beer. I, I should say, too, that um, there's a professor down at Auburn University in Alabama named Steve Ditchkoff. When I interviewed him about, I think it was the same time uh, I worked, did this article for uh, Meat Eaters, so it's probably back about a year ago mm-hmm. I was doing the interviews but Steve was was telling me that he, he, he hit some of his students that are still working on some of this lunar stuff with the GPS collars and watching what the deer are doing and he thinks they're getting close to having some decent really? predictability with it but it still it, but I got the impression it wasn't like the kind of predictability where you can just go out there and really rely on it I mean mm-hmm. deer, deer are still going to be deer mm-hmm. the, the weather is still going to be the weather and that's one thing Charlie always talked about Charlie Alshimer he always said that tr- that weather would always trump everything, mm-hmm. right? You know, and that's, that's and that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yep. That was what, actually when you said that, and you you mentioned the word predictability. This is one of those uh, almost philosophical questions that you you think to yourself, but it is an interesting thought to wonder if we were suddenly able, by some scientific or biological discovery, able to suddenly predict where deer were going to be, when they were going to be there, why, you know, at what times, mm-hmm. where, you know, in what ways will they be there? Is that good? Right. You know? Do you actually the... want that? Yeah. Do you yeah. actually want yeah. to just be able to show up and be like, yep, if I am here in 17 minutes, I'll yep. get one. Mm-hmm. The, I don't the, the know unique... what I would talk about every day if that happened. Well, the, the, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do we want complete and total predictability? Yeah. 
And the unique thing with that, too, is like with the rut specifically, you might find a day that's absolutely classic, you know, perfect conditions. You wake up like this morning. We woke up. There's a hard frost on the ground. Winds out of the north. Like it just felt like one of those days that you got to be out there. And but I saw a giant the, buck on the yeah, side of and I see, right next to a doe. Everyone huh. was seeing like deer on their way to work. It was like just one of those perfect mornings. But where I'm going with that is you could have that predictability that, yeah, today's going to be perfect. But the unique thing with the rut is it's so hit or miss. It, what might be going on cranking up to 10 in the woodlot one mile to the east of where you're at, you might be sitting in dead space and you're not seeing anything. But yeah. all it takes is one doe mm-hmm. to bring all the action India, and it changes from zero to 60 just like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the unique thing, I think, that you know we'd all kind of agree on with the rut, that it just can happen at any time. Mm-hmm. You don't really know. And that's why you get a lot of these guys that, that like to hunt all day and just spend sure. as much time in the woods as, as they possibly can. So I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Like, It really is like college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's... The rut, I, the I, rut becomes like college, a yep. college weekend. Yep. You never know what's going to happen. And you just got to be out there. But if, because if you're not in the, the game, you're out. there. Yep. <laughs> then the party will be there. Exactly. So you stay at the bar till two. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is why I brought us off topic. Where were we? No. Which what are pl- our thoughts on? On all, all day hunting. I mean, is that something that you guys oh, do yeah. in the, have oh, done man. in the past? If or? I can, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm definitely, uh, I mean, you're way bigger whitetail hunter than I am, Eric, but like this time of year, if if, if I can hack and all day sit, or mm-hmm. or even if you're switching spots, but just like staying in the field yeah. as much as you can. But sometimes, man, stuff. We got some cold mornings. Yeah. You know, that buck that I killed two years ago, I think it was 10. I think it warmed up to yeah. 10 that day. I mean, it was a, it was a cold day. I yep. mean, I hunted till I think 10 a.m. and like couldn't feel my hands, couldn't feel my feet. Yeah. You know, went <laughs> to the truck, warmed up, and then, you know, hunted the afternoon mm-hmm. and, and got lucky. But like you said, it can happen anytime, any place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I used, I used to um, hunt Ontario a lot back in the 90s and then early 2000s and also uh, the boundary waters of Minnesota. And I wrote an article for American Hunter magazine about five years ago about where I polled various people like yourself, and mm-hmm. I, I could go down the list of different guys I polled to see if you had to pick one day, one day to hunt the rut all day long, what day would it be? And mm-hmm. the one I chose was November 8th, and as a fallback, November 9th. And it's not because those are anyone ever said to me or showed me data that made those dates, but that's just based on my own experience. And if I was going to narrow it down further, I'd say, I want to be in that stand, make sure I'm in that stand between 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock, mm-hmm. 10 o'clock a.m. Yeah. and 2 o'clock in the afternoon. That's when I've killed uh, most, when I've killed during, during a rut, it's usually been in that time frame. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I, but I still, because I'm just wired the way I am, I still get out there before dawn, Yeah. get up in the tree or get up on a, like the, the one I killed in Ontario was just sitting on a, a granite uh, piece of rock mm-hmm. overlooking an old clear cut, you know, and, and so that's that's always um, been my experience. So the midday in that northern forest environment, where, where there's just virtually no humans pushing deer mm-hmm. around, there, when you see a when you see a running doe, you know she's probably running from a buck. Mm-hmm. And it happened enough times to where you just kind of got got that confidence. It doesn't happen every day. It might only happen one time in, in like in a week long hunt. But if you're not out there though, it's not you know it definitely yeah. won't happen. Yeah, exactly. And and I've seen too in the past where you know you'll end up 
getting down to adjust a stand or something midday. And this happened a couple of years ago. Um, I was down hunting with, with Aaron in yep. uh, Iowa, Aaron Warbritton from uh, the hunting public. And we were adjusting a tree stand midday. And we were walking through a, a bunch of oak leaves had dropped. And we, it was impossible to walk quietly through that stuff. You were going to make the sound of crunching leaves. And in doing that, you know, deer can hear that stuff from oh, way yeah. further away than we can. And we all of a sudden kind of ignited this little flurry of buck movement because I think those those bucks thought we were other deer walking through the leaves. Right. <laughs> Whereas if we just would have stayed put, those deer were clearly around us, and it took us getting down, making that noise. They got curious, and we had three or four bucks come yeah. in, and we were caught with our pants down because he's halfway up the tree. I'm at the bottom handing him things, and, like, there's deer <laughs> running all around us. And it's just like, let's get set up. So, well, yeah, if you, if, you know, to your point, if you're not there and if you don't wait him out, you're almost shooting yourself in the foot. Well, similar but different. Uh, I think this was last year or the year before. I, you know, I generally use that climbing stand, mm-hmm. and I was getting it was just, you know, I mean, actually, I was getting in a little late, and it was just, I mean, it was shooting light. Like, it was just shooting light, and I was climbing up. I was about six feet up in the tree, and, make, you know, you make a little noise because mm-hmm. it scrapes mm-hmm. against the tree a little bit. And, uh, I mean, it could have been this buck was just walking through, right. but, like, he was acting like he was responding to that climber going up, you know. So, again, sure. yeah, I'm, I'm six feet in the tree. I got my bow on the ground, like, trying to hoist it up without yeah. me seeing it. Yeah, he was on me in a, in a <laughs> yep. second, you know. Yep. Kind of futile. And it, yeah. it seems like from what everybody has said, and this is just, you know, maybe, I don't know, elementary, but it seems like the deer are generally, and especially the bucks, are just generally more likely to make mistakes in this time of the year. Mm-hmm. They're just, they're very much, they just have a sense of urgency, if you will. I know every time I get a sense of urgency, personally, I screw stuff up all the time. Exactly. So, you know, then all of a sudden, they just, they have this just innate they're desire to they're, just get yeah. what they got to do done. Yeah. yeah. They're just, they're distracted, they're aggressive, their emotions are high, they're doing things that they just norm otherwise it's wouldn't do. It's extremely stressful for them, too, isn't it? Mm-hmm. From everything I've gathered, like, don't, don't oh, bugs yeah. come out of the rut, well, like, they, they, they lose cooped. weight, incredible amounts of weight they shed. You feel a buck, um, well, typically, even in, if you shoot a buck in our gun season here in Wisconsin, late November, I always, I always feel that they're back, and they're always run down. Yeah. There's, there's, no, there's no fat up there, and you pull their hide off, and there's no fat on their hips, and, or just, just a little bit of fat. Yeah, yeah. So you know what they've been through. Yeah. The, Brutal. The thing that, um, one of those things that always kills me about that, that rut is you sit here, and you, you try to figure it out, and then you realize... You know, I hear guys talking about, well, bucks do this and bucks do that. Mm-hmm. And then, then you, you get, start getting down to what, what, what Jimmy was just saying about it's basically a routine that, that these animals are in. A deer is either, I would say, they're either scared or they're dead. And if you knock them off their routine in any way, I think we can all relate. If you think, what, what do we do? When do we get ourselves in the most trouble? It's when we fall out of a little routine we're in. Mm-hmm. And the one that always haunts me as a deer hunter um, one of the, <laughs> I'm always referring to these stories. I sound like such an old guy, but I, a story I wrote wrote back in the '90s was about tree stand accidents. Interviewing guys who have been been through tree stand accidents, and what happens in so many cases, they'll get up on their stand, and then something will be a little bit different that morning. A deer will be walking through in the dark, and they'll stop, and instead of hooking on like they normally would, they forget. Yeah. Because now they're they're, they're watching, trying to figure out where this deer is going by. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And then the one that always haunts me, the story that. To this day, it's like 25 years later. This guy had the, that happened to him. He got up in the stand, and 
he heard a noise, realized it was a deer, and he just watched and watched and watched and watched, and finally the deer went by, and you just hear it, and never did see it. Never, and he forgot to hook on, but later on, a buck comes walking by. And he, his habit was to always lean out from the stand until he felt that, that, that oh, um, strap come gosh. and pull him. Oh, and once he had that strap pressure, then he'd draw his bone. Well, he started leaning out while he kept going. Oh, no. And ended up paralyzed for life. Oh, my and gosh. And you think, it's not because this guy's stupid or, yeah. or, no. or, 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 got, or was in a fog. He yeah. just got out of his routine and made him forget it for a second. And then I think the same kind of stuff happens to these bucks. You know, they, they're so focused yeah, and getting that scent, finding that bull that's you know in estrus. Yeah, that they just get too focused, and it's not they're not fools. They just you know mm-hmm. they got yeah. they got their mind elsewhere. Right, exactly. Their priorities, their priorities have changed for a couple of days. Yep. Right. Is uh, is the time of rut is it different for the for the does as well? Are they going undergoing? I mean, it sounds like they're in estrus, but does that make them behave differently? That you know, or you know, you know there's some evidence of that. You know. And one of the things that came across recently with these GPS studies is these doles that would go off on these, they call them excursions. <laughs> hmm. they'll, find, they'll, they'll go out almost in a straight line sometimes, like two or three miles, and then come back. And, they, yeah. and if some of those things, you know, science can always, can always show you the what, what they did. They can't give you the why. You know, answering why with people, with deer, whatever it is, I, I kind of get, you know, I hear guys going on and on about, why deer do things? I think. Well, your guess is as good as any. Right. You know, <laughs> yep. I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's true because we can't speak deer. The, yeah. the unique thing with those excursions that you talked about, Pat, is that, so like the we talked about this a little bit before we jumped in here. So the Wisconsin DNR is doing that Southwest study, right? And what they're doing is they're collaring deer, fawns, bucks, and does, deer of all ages, and they're able to monitor their GPS coordinates. Mm-hmm. There's one, we can actually pull it up, and we'll try to get this in the show notes and see if we can get like access to the pins. But anyways, this uh, for people who are familiar with the area here, we're in southwest Wisconsin, and just a, l- a little bit north of here is a town, or northeast of here is a town of Mount Horeb. There was a doe that came all the way from, man, I want to say out towards like Spring Green or Arena, which, and, is, which oh. is about 21 miles to the yeah. northwest and s- started on the north side of the Wisconsin River, crossed the river, and this was around this first week of November time frame, and over the course of like two days made the 21-mile trek to the south and east to the town of Mount Horeb where she stayed put for a day or two, and then she went back and she got hit by a car crossing Highway 60. You are kidding me. Yeah, incredible. So I she, think, th- was that the one that... um. And she not only went back, she did it multiple. She almost, she almost did it like on a perfect reproduction. Re- so this was retracing like the steps. Multiple yes. wow. years yeah. in a row, she did the same thing. No, th- this happened. This happened last year. She did this. But what what Pat's getting at there is like if you take your onyx and you go into the woods, and you start a tracker trail, you would go in, and now if you were trying to stay on that track coming back, trying to. Looking at your map, it's almost hard for you as a person to stay right on that path. Well, yeah. here's a deer that came from 21 miles away, Oh, went to the southeast, and literally almost retraced her trail perfectly in her tracks going back to her... Without onyx. Without onyx. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's your woodsmanship lesson, folks. Well, I Pay more <laughs> attention to deer. <laughs> it's uh, it's hard to, to type with hooves. Yeah, it That's is. probably why they don't touch use screen. it. Touchscreen. Yeah, I don't Terrible. know how the touchscreen works, you know, just the way that what their hoves are made out of. Yeah. We should, get, we should start. Somebody should make a 
type of glove for deer that yeah. allows them to <laughs> use the cards they were dealt. But it's incredible those those excursions. And I want to say, don't they this time of year they'll actually kick out their their fawns from the right. previous year. I thought I, even even in a deer and deer hunting magazine a couple of years ago, I thought I I read something of a nub buck that was, you know, pushed, like, I think it was up to 20 or 30 miles away. Oh, really? From, I, I, see, I, I, I didn't see that. I, okay. I could I could be misquoting that, but I, it was along the same lines with that Southwest mm-hmm. study. It was a different study that the DNR was doing up yeah. at that time in central Wisconsin. So it was yeah. pushed oh. that distance? What do you mean yeah, by that? Yeah, so the... the and I think young bucks are a little bit different animal when it comes to does. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so it was a yearling buck, so a nub buck, that was... No, no, no! no I, I'm all ears because I, w- I, what I want to say is it was pushed I, I, away. I, I always correct people when they call nub bucks yearlings because yeah, they're not yearlings till actually a year old. Okay, yeah, so it's actually a buck fawn. Buck in, fawn, in the fall. yep. Okay, Got so it. so the buck fawn was was pushed off, and and I want to say they'll do that to a doe will do that to both fawns, oh, yeah, whether it's yeah. a, a buck doe that's for, right. you know a moot point. Is she pushing that deer off? Is he naturally dispersing, or is he getting pressure from more mature bucks in the area that's making him leave? That is a fantastic question. <laughs> well, my, my my guess, yeah. just again, yeah. just what I said earlier about us trying to figure out what a deer is up to. Yep. I'm guessing that when the, when the doe pushes her fawns off, they're priced somewhere close by usually because yep. they, they do always reunite mm-hmm. and it's usually not that long that they're gone but that'd be an interesting thing in that research to see what they're finding as far as if i don't know yeah they're tagging font yeah no i mean maybe they're not because they do a lot of tagging in, in the winter okay so i'm not sure they're tagging any, any young of the year yeah for that research but it would hmm. be would be interesting because my theory yeah my my you know assumption is that one thing we know about the the buck fawns is that they they are more, you know, if you're if you're a guy, you think they're more adventurous. You know, if a girl, you say he's more stupid. Yeah, he's he's just more <laughs> more careless. Yeah. Um, chances are, because you know, this is the behaviors you see in some of these animals, like on the the, the young mountain lions. Yeah. The young mountain lion male will go off. We've documented it over a thousand miles. Yeah. Go, go off looking for new territory where you wonder. When that buck's confu- little buck's confused mm-hmm. and his mom dries him off, if maybe he just goes gets nuts for a little bit and goes just keeps, starts walking yeah. and figures out, well, now I'm real, too far from home. I get back to mom, comes back. I right, don't, I don't right. know without tag without the research to show that I wouldn't know, but yeah, it, it makes sense to me that maybe that little fawn might go wandering off more. Than yeah, that. but then again, you'd think the two of them would want to hang around each other. Right, you know, right. So who knows? Yeah, but but yeah, they, they go off and. Another fun thing about that the research has shown, though, for the buck behavior done in Texas at this King Ranch, they do a lot of um, research on, on buck movements. They find that these, you know, again, these bucks are individuals. You know, one buck might go off a long ways, explore new territory in the rut, and other ones stay right in that core, in the core little area. But they're more active in that core area. And I, I heard a talk by um, this doctor, Carl Miller, down at University of Georgia, where he said it makes sense that you'd have these different bucks behaving differently. And if they have success one way, if, if he goes off three miles and finds a doe over there, well, he, next year he thinks, well, that, that worked last year, or whatever deer think. Right. And his experience was that this, this strategy worked, so it does it again. If I, but if a buck stayed close to home and has found his, his mate or mates that way, 
well, chances are you'll do it that way again. It might just be a random thing that happens the first or second year that they just keep repeating them, you know, for for however short life, you know, they're granted. You know, yeah. so it's again, it's always it it does make sense though. Stuff. Like I mean, and and I don't think we're any different. Like if right. you find something works, you kind of repeat yeah. that behavior. Yeah, mm-hmm. there was there going off that there was a, a deer several years ago that. Um, when I used to work at, at Midwest Whitetail, our, our boss was hunting this deer, uh, Bill Winky. It's mm-hmm. a, a deer that a lot of people would know about, but he, he hunted this thing on a, like a 40 acre tract of land, you know, and, and you look at a 40 acre tract and especially when you talk, you know, to wildlife biologists and learn more about like a buck's core area and home range and all that stuff, much bigger than a 40 acre area. But this, this buck was such a homebody, and it lived in, like, this one specific area. He was to the point where he would see this deer, even during the rut, almost every time out. And it took him two two or three full Novembers to finally huh. kill that deer. Amazing. And, yeah. and, and it literally lived in, like, a 40-acre area. And then you'll see these other bucks in these GPS-collared surveys where they, they become total nomads, and they just start roaming yeah. so it really is an individualistic thing with when it comes to buck and, behavior yeah and that shows up in study after study after study i remember back in the 90s when they all i had was these radio telemetry collars and mm-hmm. these big honking things they put on these bucks and they'd be out there these oh yeah those big antennas yep. trying to figure triangulate where they are <laughs> when you're talking about labor intensive but they did that in, in a suburb of minneapolis back in the early 90s um jay mackinich and some of his students when he was at the minnesota dnr mm-hmm. And they, they tracked these bucks in these suburban areas. And same thing showed up in these urban bucks. For the, some were homebodies, some went wandering off, mm-hmm. crossing these multi-lane highways around Minneapolis. And, and eventually <laughs> come back, and some got hit by cars. And you know, Yeah. But it's been done enough now with different research where they don't find that predictability between the individual bucks where you think, well, must you know they are individuals. Yeah, yep. Have they found anything where you look at a young buck versus an older buck and any correlation as to, like, I would think that you it would be the younger one that might be more prone to being nomadic, if you will, and then the older one is a little bit more like, well, I'm going to stay yeah. put, or maybe it could be the other way around. I think they have. I have to go back and do some refresh. I, I, I get kind of nervous when I try to realize particularly in memory, but I think there is something to that where the older buck might start settling down into a, a smaller area mm-hmm. and, is, and is working it mm-hmm. you know but God, it seems to me that i read that too because mm-hmm. I've, I've probably written it but my problem <laughs> yeah. is i i don't know like i go back and read some of my stuff from even a year ago five years ago ten years ago and i think i i guess i knew that at one time yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> but yeah it would seem to i feel like i've heard people when they discuss just sometimes the way that older bucks act around a certain area compared to the younger bucks, the the older buck tends to kind of hang back and sort of watch over a group of does or something like that. When, you know, whereas the younger ones kind of come in and they're trying to find, they're trying to essentially find where they belong a little bit, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, then there's this um, Val Geist up in, um, he's a retired professor. He's in his, I think he's probably in his early eighties, been up in Calgary, but he always had this, the theory of the shirt, the shirker, and basically a buck that would shirk his um, reproduction um, responsibilities, almost like asexual. And that he would, he hmm. said some of these biggest bucks out there are ones that really aren't all that sexually motivated. They, they will, would just kind of hang back and and put all their energy into their antlers. I mean, they don't do it consciously, but that's what happens when they're, you know, year after year, if they're just not really that sexually motivated to be 
pushing around, looking around, but he said these shirkers would come out that he'd observed these in mule deer. He'd watch these big bucks come walking on these um, real good, tough, um, thick underbrush, and then see another buck that might cause him some problem and just disappear back in the brush, didn't want any kind of confrontation. <laughs> really? Just didn't have that um, that typical buck-like stuff that, that um, we always yeah, treasure. And, and then, you, then you talk to the, the guys who, who um, have these deer farms, and they purposefully keep bucks at low stress levels to, so they can throw all those, put all their energy toward the antlers. Oh, right. And Because any time there's stress, any time there's um, disease or sickness is taking that, when, when they're in that growth cycle, hmm. the more stress they're under that, that time, you know, I guess it affects how they grow their antlers, you know, the amount of energy left to put into the antlers. Hmm. So, you know, there, there is some um, some fascinating stuff about those. You know, like, and another thing about the game farms, that I remember going on to one of them, they have, if you look at them, typically they have the, the um, where the deer are spending most of the time, they'll have like um, canvas up or plastic up against the, the fence so, so nothing from the outside can distract them, you know, scare oh, them. Geez. Oh, really? You know, so they kind of almost you know, live in this kind environment, of a bubble. Bubble, almost yeah. a bubble where they, they, they don't have that pressure of that scaring of, of coyotes or dogs or else might be in that on that perimeter. That's so they, they really try to... Uh, control those kind of things as much as possible. Wow. Do those deer, and, you know, not that I really expect us to be talking much about game farms, but now I'm mm-hmm. curious, do those deer go through the same sort of rut timing and activity and so. thing that yeah. the other yeah. deer do? Is that That's just, that's, that's not that's, something that they learn by seeing other deer doing. It's just sort of in them programmed. Know, yeah, because most of those whitetails at some point were, you know, not too, not in a too far distant past were wild animals. True, you know? yeah. You know, when you, um, I think too, if you were to put up a big fence in Wisconsin or most states, I think they they either try to get you to force all the deer as many deer as you can, and then there's some kind of some states make them pay for whatever deer remain inside that enclosure. Then the other ones are in the old days. I mean, there was cases where um, I remember when I worked in Oshkosh at the newspaper up in Oshkosh back in the '80s. I remember the warden working on these cases where a game farm would have get to the point where they have too many deer and they'd open the gates and let, oh, let them out every now and then, which, oh, you're, not wow. supposed, which you're not supposed to do with history be investigating that. <laughs> yeah. And so you think, well, there's, there's, there's always been some of that in us, but, but it's really clamped down now in, in the CWD right. um, era we're in now yep. where it's, this stuff isn't, isn't laughed anymore. It's serious stuff yeah. now when people do anything that's a little bit untoward. Yeah. You know, so it's just a mm-hmm. different world now we're in. No, you're talking a little bit about, um, you know, second rut. And, and actually, so well, I was actually curious when we were thinking about doing this podcast, like the word rut, like to me, you know, you think like, oh man, I'm stuck in a rut. And it's like this kind of like, almost like a <laughs> negative connotation. Yeah. I'm like, so why is this like this magical rut? Like, why is it even called the rut? So I did look that up <laughs> and apparently it comes from a Latin word. Now I'm not going to say the Latin word because I'd probably mispronounce it, meaning roar. Right, roar. Which... I find also interesting because when you go to like uh, New Zealand and you got the stags when they're in their rut, they call it the roar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Found, oh, really? They just call it the roar. Like, yeah, they'd be like if they were referring to the the stag rut, they'd call it. Oh, it's the roar right now. Yeah, they're roaring hard right now. And that's <laughs> not necessarily because they, uh, you know, get up on top of big rocky peaks and roar. Oh no, the they sunset. actually make yeah, like a they? like a very oh. hoarse 
bugle? Well, I think I think it, I think it originated um, over in Europe with the red stags. You know that when they roar, when like, right. like, like elk bugle, mm-hmm. and these sick deer out in Maryland. You know that are yeah. invasive or not really invasive. We brought them here and non-native, non-native. Yeah. Thank you. But they have Melting that same pot. kind of. <laughs> And then that's, but I think it was a bastardization of, of the word um, "roar" that ended up being "rut." You know, that's you know how words mm-hmm. mutate over time. But I completely sidetracked myself there. But anyway, so you're talking about the second rut, but you mm-hmm. hear people talk about the pre-rut, the rut, post-rut. You hear about lockdown phases. You hear about uh, the October lull. Right. Yeah. Because like, yeah, not everybody is just hunting or just killing deer. During the rut. During the rut. And it, I feel like, and then this is stuff I've heard, but it kind of makes sense, like, that the actual rut, or what I envision, like, as, like, the peak of the rut when you're seeing all this activity actually isn't the rut. Am I right? Is there merit to that? Mm-hmm. Wait, what? <laughs> like, that's almost like what I love about the rut or this entire time period is probably, like, more pre-rut. The oh, actual okay. rut, I guess, where bucks are like they're moving and they're dogging does, right. but maybe those does like they're maybe not ready yet, but they're getting close to being ready. Yeah, I because I think what you're referring to there is almost like that that peak rut time frame when when bucks are tending does is that yeah. lockdown phase that I think you kind of you it know it can be slow some days. Yeah. yeah, and I think a lot of that comes just from the fact that you know a buck might get with a doe and he literally may not leave her side. If if she's bedded down, he's going to be bedded down. And he won't leave her side for, you know, a, a day, a day and a half or something like that. And I think during that time frame, you see a lot of, it's feast or famine. If you have that doe nearby right. you, you're going to have that buck and probably several other, you hear satellite bulls and elk hunting all the time. Mm-hmm. You, you might get that same effect in the whitetail woods of younger bucks trying to get in on that, mm-hmm. on that doe. You know, but like we kind of talked about a little bit ago, if you're, just a little bit off from where that their location is, you can be sitting there like a fish out of water. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I mean that it is an interesting thing to think about that way because it really can be feast or famine. Right. Right. So. Where I think like maybe a little bit before that, before those bucks are front and, and these does, I mean they're coming, they're not all coming in the exact same time, right. same day. And, and so I mean awful the, high percentages, right? I think it's like almost like seventy percent occur in one little block of time, and then there's the ones that start a little earlier, and start ones that start at the end. Right. And mm-hmm. and so when the, when the the more active doles there are, more estrus doles there are, of course, then you're probably going to see a lot more activity as they're, you know, running around, being chased and drawing bucks in. And if you're in a real high deer-density area, you're probably seeing deer all, all over the place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you go up in the, the forest, you know, northern Wisconsin or Minnesota, Ontario, those areas, there's not many deer. And But when, when, it, when the rut's on and these deer are moving, it's, it's, it's funny how I remember one day I was up in the Boundary Waters, and I, over the course of a day, around again my favorite day, November eighth, I was still hunting. and Came across four different bucks that day, and one of them, if I just would have, I still, I still, <laughs> oh, I still, still, just, I still, <laughs> still, still bothers me. At one o'clock in the afternoon, I was taking a nap, yeah, but not, not really sleeping. Just had my eyes closed. I hear it. It's like your your description earlier of this activity walking. Yep, I'm, I can hear this deer going through the leaves not too far yep. away. I jump up, get the rifle on him, and I realize, well, as soon as you see that rear leg and the way it was built, right away, you know, this is a big deer. And then I could see a flash of his antler. I thought, this is really a nice deer. And I, I always second-guess myself that. 
I thought he was just going to step out and I'd have a crack at him here. And I, I always think I should have just yelled yeah. and stop him. But he, instead of walking that way, he just kind of curled it that way. And oh. the next thing you know, he's behind these trees and I lost him. Oh, man. But, but, you know, but then the next day, the day before that, nothing. The day after yeah. that, nothing. But that, that day, it seemed like I could not get out of bucks. I, two, one buck was an eight-pointer I passed up. I had him for early in the morning. Yeah. And that, that one happened at around one. And then before the end of the afternoon, I'd cross paths with two of their fork bucks where I could hear them coming, you know, doing a little grunt coming through the woods. You know? <laughs> and the next day, I thought, I'm in a hot spot. Yeah. And I went back, hunted that same reason. Never, never heard a peep, never God, saw anything. Man. And I think, well, it, you know, it's, I'm sure there was a hot doe in that area and right. there were a couple of them, and these bucks were, were after her. Uh, you mentioned the... Uh noises that you know a couple of younger bucks are making um and i know i've heard of people utilizing tactics like you know grunts rattling scraping um bleats yeah that kind of stuff uh during i guess i i hear people say a lot of those things just sort of during hunting season but but just because i'm not as up and up on it are you doing that stuff more during the rut because it's it's you're playing on their agitation their stress and their proneness to sort of jump on something if they hear it or are you is that stuff you're also doing outside of the rut more pre-rut post-rut what's what's up with those things those tactics yeah i mean i i think it's definitely something that can apply as early as opening day in the season i mean literally as soon as is and i'm curious to hear what you guys have to think about this too but as soon as bucks strip their velvet they're going to start sparring with one another and determining Mm -hmm. that pecking order so it can definitely something like rattling or grunting those vocalizations can be uh useful regardless of the calendar date but i think right now we're sitting here at kind of like that that peak pre-rut that leads up into like your your rut kickoff i guess and i don't think there's any time in the year where it's as effective as it is right now because you just have their testosterone is built up rattling and stuff like that you're playing off that aggression that tendency that they have to come and get get curious where you know as maybe a month ago they might have heard that but they're just not as receptive to it as they are right now so i don't know that's my thoughts what do you guys think i mean i i agree 100 percent. i mean i think it's it's hap- it's happening now i mean this is when it's happening you, you got you got bucks that you know if you sound like another buck you know, or let's say you're grunting, he might think, oh, maybe that buck is on a hot dough. Mm-hmm. You know, he may not even be coming in. At least these are like my speculations, right? He may not be coming in to fight. He may be coming in to take what that other buck might have. Or or maybe you sound like a buck that he doesn't even know about and he wants to see who's in his territory. Can I ask, are you doing these sort of vocalizations or sounds after you've heard a deer in the distance or something or you sort of know there's one out there, you just don't know where it is? Maybe you already have seen it, or is it just silence in the woods? You have no idea if anything is around you, and then you just kind of like, like a turkey call almost. You kind of mm-hmm. just—is that how it's working? I'd say both. Yeah, all, all of the above. Yeah, yeah. I think there's two trains of thought there. You'll get some guys that want to be a little more cautious and only want to, you know, vocalize or try to call to deer that they can actually see, because I think a lot of a lot of calling is playing on the right deer with the right mindset. You know, it takes literally the same buck an hour later may not be receptive to that call just because he's not in that mood. Whereas if you can, you know, see that deer grunt at him, rattle at him and, and, uh, gauge how he reacts to that, you're going to know, you know, whether or not he's 
um, receptive to, to committing into that setup. But on the other hand, there is the strategy of blind calling where you really don't know what's around you, you make a ton of noise. And a lot of times, you know, deer are going to, bucks especially, come in downwind of that. So I think the caution that some folks have with that is they don't like getting busted. So they tend to be a little bit more cautious when it comes to doing that blind calling. One thing I've learned the hard way, and one thing I'll, I'll preface it by saying, though, is that one of the great things about being an outdoor writer is that you learn early in your career, at least I did, that you're not in the same category typically as the guys who are really good at this. I mean, when I, when I talk to guys like Bill Winky, Greg Miller, the late Gary Clancy, some of these guys who are really superior whitetail hunters, God, I, I, I learned real quickly, you're not in their, you're not in your, their category it's better to have them either interview them mm-hmm. or have them write about because mm-hmm. they really they're out there all the time and they and they really have I think they have instincts and insights that I'll never have. Mm-hmm. But I the, the one thing I have learned though is that when you do rattle, if you're on the ground working an area, don't stop and rattle until you have the right setup that you that you're setting up with the idea that this is going to work. You got to have this every time you stop and rattle. You got to have this idea that. This is going to work this time. Hmm. And then make sure you're set up where you can take advantage of it. Because like you're saying, that buck will always come in downwind. And there's I've done enough times up in the forest where you'll just be walking around randomly. This rattle me now and then, well, yeah, 99 times it doesn't work. Well, then finally it works. And you're now in a spot where, the, where it's all thick brush downwind yep. to you. And sure enough, they come right in behind you. You can hear the twig snap. You know they're you know they're got their nose up and they're just mm-hmm. and they're and they're just it's quiet and they're, and they're gone. Yep. So that's why it's my advice to people when you rattle, make sure you're in a spot where you're confident it's gonna work this time. And if if you don't if you don't have that if you don't have that spot where if you start rattling and you don't have that have the right open area behind you where it's semi open where you can actually see something move, moving through there downwind to you. Don't don't rattle there. Yeah. But I used to always just walk along, rattle, rattle, rattle. Finally, it happened enough times where I realized, quit rattling unless you're set up in the proper spot. Where yep. you can shoot yeah. down and, Yeah, and then, and then don't be standing out in the open. So many guys, <laughs> they, walk in, they walk down logging roads, and it happened to me again. You know, yep. rattle, next thing you know, buck's right there, right? Looking at you from the edge of the woods, and he's got you pegged. Yeah. And, <laughs> but, but, but I think that comes from that lack of confidence. You know, you got to have confidence that yeah. this is going to work. Yep. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that confidence, don't rattle. Right. Yeah. It's kind of weird when you actually get really busted by a deer. Yeah. Because I guess, like, this is just sort of a random thing. It really has nothing to do with almost anything. But I just was thinking about it. Like, if you were out there and there were people out in the woods or something like that, and a person saw you and stared straight at you and sort of mm-hmm. knew that you were, like, after him or whatever and then ran off, it would be, like, a really spooky experience. Yeah. yeah, but like when you see a deer, see you just kind of like, oh, yeah, well, saw me, yeah. whatever, <laughs> and it's just sort of, I mean, that like you don't know that deer, that deer doesn't know you, yeah. like that deer thinks you're trying to kill it, you yeah. know, it's just sort of like eh, because I very, am, yeah. yeah, because you are. It's a very, uh, it's a very, it's a very odd, peculiar interaction that yes. that we have with uh, predator with prey, yeah. yeah. Tony Peterson always talks about the fact that if the roles were reversed and if, like, people were constantly being hunted by grizzly bears, how different we would actually act. Oh, so much, yeah. And and when you apply that to, like, deer hunting especially, you know, people park in the same parking lots. They walk down the same trails. Those deer learn really quick what areas to avoid. 
And it almost takes that creative approach kind of that we're talking about here is like not getting caught out on the logging trail and paying attention to what's downwind. When you start applying that, it's like you can really take, you can look at a map and you can really start removing chunks like, hey, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. And then before you know it, you just took 500 acres and now you got 60 Mm -hmm. acres that you can really kind of focus in on. And Mm -hmm. I think that's that analogy that Tony has is super interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, no, that totally makes a lot of sense for sure. The the hunting public were the first people that I had heard mention it this way, where they had said that if you're driving down the road or something, you see deer off the side of the road. Whereas a lot of people that I know, I know when I grew up, it was just kind of like, look, deer. And then it was like, cool. And then you drive on. It's like, well, all right, that happened. Mm -hmm. Well, now when I see deer, I'm like, okay, well, why are there deer there? What's nearby? What is the terrain like? Mm -hmm. What's the weather like? What's Mm -hmm. this? And all of a sudden you start trying to uh, do your own little scientific analysis of why that deer might've been there. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. What time of day is it? Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Everything. Hunters definitely look at the land a lot differently than the average person, you know, you're, you're so, all your hunting life, you're, you know, you learn real quickly, even if you're not quite aware of it, what areas look, you know, deary, whatever, you know, yeah, you're, you're, yeah. Use, where do you want to use? You get pretty good at picking that stuff up. One guy I know that I hunt with every now and then up in, up in Bounty Waters, he's from um, New London, Wisconsin. Okay. But he was telling me where he picks his areas to hunt in the Bounty Waters, you know, and it's always during the rut. He said that he gets he'll he'll be still hunting through an area when he gets to a spot that makes it makes him think of this looks like Wisconsin and where he's <laughs> in in central Wisconsin where it's all deer country mm-hmm. basically all that farm country and the marshes and the edges of um, where a wetlands merges into a woods when he comes into those little areas that make him think of Wisconsin and not northern forest yep. that's typically where you, where you find the deer and I think yeah I can I can buy that I know what you're saying because you, you know, there, there are Lots of spots for where I hunt in northern Wisconsin for the most part. It's up in um, Ashland County, not too far from Mellon. Yeah. Yep. And for the forest I hunt, I hunt there because my friend Shaq is there. If I were to hunt, go up there and hunt on my own, that's the last place I'd probably go hunting. Yeah. Because it's, it's really mature black spruce and some tamarack, but a lot of, lot of balsam fir, mm-hmm. just not good deer habitat. Yeah. Yep. But, you know, oh, I was pick on I said yeah even the wolves don't hunt here right <laughs> yeah <now."> yeah <laughs> but it's really just yeah. not good deer habitat but there's a we, we get we have just enough coming through where we get one every now and then yeah. but it's not like where I hunt in the boundary waters or where I used to hunt up in Ontario where you look for those areas that have this cool interface so that the yep. marshland and, and the woods and the and the old blowdowns or fire areas that had fire yeah, you go in there. Sometimes you can actually get you know, your your clothes will get black from the the soot on. Oh wow! And, you know, and this is stuff that was burned years ago, but it still has yeah. that black you know charcoal to it. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty wild. It it is interesting how you somehow like whether you do it intentionally or not, like you you compile like this data in your head where you just know like a spot is deary or uh, when I was in Washington last week, we we're driving down this logging road, and I. I didn't even get the words out of my mouth. I was about to say, man, this road looks grousy. And then <laughs> here they go, you yeah, know? Right. And like, and I, I thought to myself afterwards, though, like, well, why? Why, why did I all of a sudden go, there's going to be grouse right here, you know? And, and yeah. I, I actually I still can't even pinpoint exactly why, it but just it was felt just like, right. <laughs> it was perfect. It was like mm-hmm. the right around amount of cover and there was shade. And I think there was a creek coming through. And just like for whatever the reason, like, I don't even know what foliage was around me at the time, but I was just like, oh, man, this looks good. And, yeah. and there they were. Yeah, that's cool. That's one of the fun things I, I found, too, with 
being out, being an outdoor writer, there, there are guys that you know just talking to them briefly and you look at what they've done over the years hunting, you know, these guys are really good at this. Awesome. But, but you, try to, you try to get them to describe what it is that they're acting on and some of them can't do it. That's why I think guys like Winky and um, Tony Peterson's are folks who, who are making it as, as um, outdoor writers, yep. but also deer hunting experts. They have the ability to put their thoughts into words and, and they're able to somehow form that thought that they can relate to other people what they're seeing. But even then, I think that's probably why there's been so much success with you know, like podcasts and TV shows right. where they actually show it a little bit. Where some of that stuff is really hard to explain in writing what without in the old days you do all these maps and stuff and yeah and try to give guys an idea of what what you're doing but still not as graphic as the actual you know video footage or something Mm -hmm. that that's the the coolest thing about where we're at right now in in the hunting community i mean there's definitely a lot of stuff that we can do better at but the cool thing with where we're at now is it's there's never been a better time to come into deer hunting oh my gosh like Mm -hmm. you can like i know i mean not to beat tony peterson to death but he's (laughs) He's got that thing that he's doing right now, like how to kill a buck, where he literally like overlays the hmm. map and like talks about what he's looking for and all that stuff. And it's just it's interesting to see and get into the minds of some of these people who, like you mentioned, are, are proven and can actually articulate their thoughts. Whereas you know, then there's people on the other hand who are great at it, but they can't tell you what kind of tree they're in. Yeah. Would you let's say you have somebody who is new to deer hunting, would you introduce them to deer hunting by way of having them hunt during the rut? Or would you introduce them to deer hunting by way of having them hunt before or after? Or what would your go-to time be? That's a good question. I think with the rut, deer activity in general is going to be more scattered, less predictable, but but more frequent. Yeah. Whereas if you look at like an early or a late season time frame when deer are more tied to like a specific food source it might be more predictable it in many ways it's kind of like what it probably depends on the person yeah you got to sort of know what would trip their trigger if Mm -hmm. you will but you also sort of want to set them up too if you're trying to get them to be a long-term hunter for a realistic expectation in some ways of what to be ready for when they go out in the future again by themselves or the following year so yeah i'm sure you it seems like the rut is exciting. I mean, everybody gets so excited for it. But then some of those other times, I don't want to say it doesn't involve any strategy in the rut because it certainly does. Mm-hmm. But other times it's a little bit more, reminds me almost of uh, General Patton, you know, and, and advancing very strategically and doing yeah. things and understanding what they're going to be doing and when they're yep. going to be doing it and where you're going to be set up and a little bit less random. Oh, yeah. I, th- I think the rut is cool because you get to see bucks doing just bucky things. Yeah. And, yeah, and they're just they're just doing things that they don't. Maybe yeah. they're doing it those other times of year, or even in like earlier in the rut, but just yeah. like not at at that level. You know, first time hunter though. I mean, I think you could look at things like, well, is this person going to be like if they get cold, are they done? You right. Know? Yeah. Or you know, Com- so comfort's an, a huge factor. Yeah. An, an early season hunt might be better for that person. Oh, so yeah, it's not as cold. I know. For me, I get bored. Which was God, why, so do. so when my first hunt was a very, very hiking-based hunt, you know, and it was just like moving, move spot, move spot, move spot. Everything was new because we were in a new location. So it was like seeing all kinds of stuff I, ha- I didn't normally see. It was very grueling, mm-hmm. tiring. So when you did stop, it was like, man, I'm glad we stopped. Yeah. But then you would stop for a little bit and be like, yeah, this isn't good. It was also probably about as busy as Best Buy on Black Friday there. There were some folks out there. 
so anyway, you had to always be bouncing around these other hunters, but yeah. at least my mind was always active. Right. And then I, <laughs> I've gone out at times before now and sat and I can't sit for a half an hour before being like, man, I feel like I want to go chase one down and yeah. just do something. Yeah. The cool thing about the rut though, is even with that tactic, I think with the whole like mobile thing, you know, I think we're, we're talking specific here a little bit to bow hunting. But, uh, you know, even being mobile and doing the spot and stock thing, like our, our friends at the hunting public do a lot of ground hunting right now. And you can yep. definitely like get into deer just by being out there in the woods and, and bouncing from spot to spot. That's a, mm-hmm. that's a valid tactic, I think. Mm-hmm. Just as much as one guy might want to tie himself to his favorite tree that's set up in the best ditch crossing funnel or something like that you might be able to find the same amount of success just going from spot to spot. Yeah. Well, I mean, I haven't killed a buck this way, but we're talking about, you know, times of day and, you know, that midday time period can be, I mean, like I said, I think any time during the rut can be like, you know, the time. But I've had several instances where I'm going to my stand, getting in a little later than I'd like, so it's breaking daylight, and bucks are running all around, you know, and you almost get a crack at them right, yeah. right when you're getting your stand. You're on, you're on the ground, and and oftentimes it comes down to a brush issue. You know, right. I've, I've been pulled back, but because I am on the ground, uh, and wasn't you know anticipating an encounter right there, or whatever circumstances, you know, you have uh, kind of that that brush barrier. You can't kind of, uh, I guess that's the advantage or one advantage of a tree stand is you can kind of shoot down into kind of pocket type openings. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's I do I do enjoy hunting from a tree stand in that regard, but. Somewhat. Pat, what's your go-to for like a newer hunter? What time of year would you take them out? I think it depends on the time of year and also um, where you'll be hunting. I mean, I know if I were going to take someone someone north up north hunting the first time, I'd probably would really concentrate on the rut. Yeah, because then your chances of seeing deer are better. But I think some of the some of the more relaxing ways to hunt deer is in that September time period when it first opens up in Wisconsin when they're on the on the field edges and you know, I'm six. I'll be 64 in two months, and I think I still see a deer, and I still get excited. And I think, and, oh yeah, and especially when you're hunting, and and you know that's an animal you know you might want to you know take a shot at. And I think kids, young people, first timers, you know, if they're comfortable and, and they're not distracted by you know the colder it is, uh, the less patience they have. <laughs> you know that Leopold had this great quote in that um his Sanconi Almanac about shooting his first duck. And I, I never forgot it where he's sitting on this December afternoon on a little pothole, on a little farm pond on one little spot of open water in it where the, where the windmill pipe comes out and drops water in. He said, he sat there waiting for that. He's thinking that late in the day is going to be at least one duck in the area is going to come back and land in that spot. So he's waiting. He's, a little, he's probably 14, 15 years old at the time, he said. And he describes it as, I got colder with each passing crow. (laughs) 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 I think hunters understand that sentiment, you know? Yeah. And and that's, you know, when you sit there in November, like this week's pretty cold in Wisconsin. And and if you're not seeing deer, you're not hearing a crashing in the distance that you know is a deer, all those kind of things that experienced hunters understand as part of the process, it's hard to get a little kid or a beginner convinced that it's going to be worth it. Right, you know they don't know that yet. So I think I I guess I'm more of an early season, get them going in the early season. But then again, though, if you're up north, I'm not a baiter. I just don't. I could you know people get mad at me for saying that, but I just do not think deer baiting is the way to go. And because you know, up in the forest, especially during the rut, 
if, you're, if it's not that area's not being baited, you know, it's a lot mm-hmm. more fun. Yeah. You know, because those deer are moving naturally, and the does are out feeding, and the bucks are looking for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And it's just a much more interactive, fun way to hunt, I think. Yep. You know, one thing, and if you hunted white, I think we're, you know, all deer rut, right? So we've kind of right. been talking, you know, targeting, I guess, whitetails more than anything else. So maybe we've got some other, you know, rut topics that we can do with mule deer and, and blacktails and things like that, that, you know, maybe they're doing, I think they're doing very common things, but maybe, you know, somewhat different. But bucks are doing things, like you said, Eric, they shed their velvet and they start doing buck things. They start making scrapes. They start making rubs, maybe certain vocalizations, perhaps. Does that change throughout the rut or should you be should you be hunting that sign differently as the rut goes through its different stages maybe that's the question i'm trying to ask Mm -hmm. like should you be hunting scrapes in october but you don't really need to pay them too much mind in november and then or vice versa or how should we be reading buck sign during the rut or even from i'd say october 25th through november 20th I'll let you take the wheel on that one. <laughs> that was you saw me struggling yeah. there. Oh, I know I yeah. get what you're asking. Yeah, yeah. and the, the first thing I, I think Greg Miller is probably the first guy that's like given credit for tying together rub lines. Mm-hmm. And in Greg's book, uh, Rub Line Secrets, I think it was that turned in the book. He writes about how he's killed some nice bucks off rub lines, but he said at that point, this is like I think the late '90s, early 2000s when he wrote that, late '90s. I think he said at the end of that book, he had only worked from like six times where he actually killed a buck off that rub line. And I think, um, yeah, that, that's just like musky fishing, fishermen saying, you know, muskies uh, fish of 10,000 casts. Well, that's what deer hunting is like. You know, you got to be out there a lot, and but you still got to take your best shot at what you have. And, and the, during that early part of probably, it's probably like, I'd say late October, when they're ruts, where they really aren't mating yet, but they're out looking. They're out there hoping that they're going to come across that estrus doe, and it might be some of those early doves coming in the estrus that's got them cranked up, so they're, they're moving. They've got this all pent up, and they're going. And so they're probably still moving along those, those rub lines and maybe scrape lines. And that the one, one great thing I always pass along from John Ozoga's research that I think is really good for guys to keep in mind is when, when you find a scrape, make sure it has the overhanging branch. Right. Uh, the one thing he showed in his research is that if there's no overhanging branch, it's just a random scrape. You find a scrape that's out there and there's nothing underneath, no, no overhead, over branch has been chewed yep. up. He, chances are he'll never come back to that scrape. You know, it's just, it's just you know, something that did it random. Me and our buck confronted them and he was doing that to show us, you know, who's dominant, whatever it might be. But that was one of John's insights that I thought was worth letting people know because... Interesting. It, you know, that is it, interesting. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I definitely think that that sign is something that you really want to pay attention to throughout October because, like like you mentioned, Jimmy, like it's like General Patton directing traffic, you know, like a plan of attack. It's very specific in late October. You want to be really close to specific areas where deer are bedded. I think in November you can play off that random movement that you're going to get. You know, folk, you can focus more generally on, like, a travel corridor or, like, a couple of trails that intersect rather than, okay, I need to be within – 150 yards of this suspected bedding area on this specific wind, I don't think that comes into play as much during the rut because I think deer are just generally more active. Mm-hmm. So, hmm. yeah, yeah, I think I think Bill Winky always did a good job of talking about um, putting yourself in those in those good travel junctions. 
pinch points that when these bucks are moving, I think he always talked about, I haven't talked to Bill in years now, but I think in his articles, he used to always stress topography, yep. geography, and finding those spots where they, they're naturally funneled through them quickly to get to another spot that they're checking. And Greg Miller, I remember always talking about the fun of finding these spots where, you know, there's multiple deer trails and then everything, the other geography, other geological, geographic things would, would work where he could watch. He says sometimes those bucks would come through and they'd intentionally go across at a, like a 90-degree angle to all those trails, scent-checking them. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, and then doing it from a way they're, they're getting the, you know, they get that scent and they go across, right across the next trail, hit that one, next trail. Yep. And it's just this really efficient way they, they use the, the terrain to move about. Yep. Bill's thing with it, the whole like cr- creeks and ditches, you know, like those terrain features, he would literally look at a map and look at terrain features and pick a stand based off what the terrain looked like and disregard any deer sign. No kidding. So uh-huh. we're, I think that's that's an interesting way to look at like hunting the rut. Generically, you can almost pinpoint the areas where you expect deer to move or be funneled by terrain features like uh, a ditch that comes to an end and then there's a trail that's going to go around the ditch just sit there you know eventually mm-hmm. by thousand casts ten thousand casts buck's going to come by just like things. that yeah <laughs> i'm picturing a spot in my head right now eric it's about G- that time. jim shockey had a back when jim was, was an actual you know jim was a, an excellent writer he used to write for us at deer and deer any magazine back in the 90s and he got you know so big they didn't attempt to do a lot of writing but he wrote I people thought it was I think they thought it was going to be one of his humorous articles but it was, that, it was called um, The Bald Man's Head and it goes back to this whole thing about terrain but Jim told this interesting story about sitting in a movie theater and the guy in front of him was bald and he, and he started realizing that the guy on the human head there's little furrows and the, the hair covers those furrows on if, if guy has a full head of hair like, like Jimmy does. <laughs> a bald head, bald head like mine. No, you can see yep. all the little indentations in, in the skull. And Jim started thinking how, you know, you go out in the forest, and when those trees cover the land, you tend not to notice all those little indentations in, in the land, things that funnel deer. And once you started to think yeah. about, about that land, that forest is always being like the bald man's head, that's when he started to key in on those, those geological, yeah. ge- geographic features that, you know, deer t- tend to huh. use. That's one thing I think everyone would benefit from hunting northern forest environments from those very low deer densities, very low deer numbers, because you really get good at, fic- you know, you might not even see a deer trail, but you look around and you realize this is where a deer would have to come through here, like these, mm-hmm. these, these swamps and these corners where there's funnels coming down from little ridge lines and just funnels so many things in one direction. But then you get yeah, play the wind. But it's interesting that in Ontario, what I typically do is, you know, it'd be snow, no tracks, just random tracks. You start thinking, where would a deer go just naturally in this landscape? And so you go and plunk yourself down there, and it might be a day sometimes, but... Typically, those good terrain features, that's where you'd, you'd you know, eventually cross paths with the buck. Yeah. You know, it's just, hmm. you still look for sign, that, you know, like, because they, they reopen their scrapes, and when you see some of those big buck tracks in that snow, like, God, yeah. that, that doesn't keep you motivated to keep hunting. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know? When we were um, when we were over in Nebraska, I remember trying to get out back to our truck. At one point, we had hiked quite a ways in. We found ourselves in some really thick areas around sort of a waterway. There was a lot of plum thickets, dense trees. 
And a couple times we sort of got lost, turned around in it. We couldn't figure out where to go. And I remember that it was uh, Ryan Muckenhern who was pointing out, he started looking at the ground and he'd say, here, follow these deer trails. And sometimes you'd see a deer trail go up and it'd be like, I don't really know if that is a way out. But you also have to think to yourself, the deer live here. Like They know how to get out. Just like in my house, you know, I know how to fiddle with the basement door enough to actually get to shut all the way. You know, there's these little things that you understand. So if you start following deer trails, you might go deeper in on accident. But if they look like they're going the general direction you're trying to go, chances are they'll get you out or where you want to go. Well, they're going to pick. I mean, they're no dummies. They know where to walk. They know where. They don't like getting scraped up. Yeah, they don't want to be poked in the eyes and. Yeah, then case in point, when I was hunting blacktails this last weekend, my dad shot a buck down in this clear cut, <laughs> and it was in the bottom of the clear cut, super steep. <laughs> uh, but we we got the deer out, but we took deer trails out, and right. like I mean, it was interesting though, like because I had my onyx and like. I could see by the topo lines, like kind of like the most gentle way out, even though there really wasn't a gentle way out. It was still all going to be steep. But those deer trails followed kind of like that yep. path of least resistance up the ridge. It was, kinda, yeah. it was interesting how hmm. those two married up. Yeah. And whenever you see that kind of thing, it is sort of like watching ghosts because you're like, there's a lot of activity here. I never see any of it. And there's none of it around me right, right now. But clearly it's like a mega super highway. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You guys do much with decoys during the rut? Oh, that's a really good thing to touch on. I have not in the past personally, but in in the days where I used to film hunts, I filmed quite a few of people hunting over them. Mm -hmm. And uh, one specific hunt that that comes to mind is... We were, we were hunting in an area where there was a big bottom. So picture a flat area with ridges that come up, and uh, we're, we're set up over a CRP field that was in this bottom. So basically, you're sitting in the bottom of a coliseum, and everything that's up on the ridgetops can see down in that, that CRP field. Uh, my friend, who I was filming at the time, was setting up a tree stand, and I crept out in there to set the decoy out. And I set the decoy out, and I'm on my way back to the tree, and I can just judge the guy's body language who's in the tree that something was going on. So I kind of crouched down and looked behind me, and there's this great big buck <laughs> that had come out. And he, he, mu- he literally must have watched that decoy get, like, set up and was just so visually struck by the fact that there's now a buck there and kind of like like weird two-legged creature came out and set this buck down but this buck long story short he crept in got downwind of that decoy and it it took just the way that the terrain was there was a ditch that pushed him where for him to get truly downwind he had to get pinched by that ditch if he wanted to stay on our side of the the crp field and long story short he ended up getting about like 10 yards from that decoy and i was laying on the ground (laughs) and the guy was who i was filming was up in the tree stand getting everything set up watching all this and and actually filmed some like really cool footage of me laying under the decoy and this buck like you know less than 10 yards away so i think it's i think it's something that is a, a really good tactic and i think it can really work you know that that was a situation where it was an open field but I definitely think it's something that even in open hardwoods, you know, mm-hmm. guys can uh, overlook the effectiveness of it because, you know, a lot of times we're talking about vocalizations, you know, rattling, grunting, snort wheezing. If you have that visual cue, whether it's a full-size decoy or even the more portable, like the two-dimensional decoys mm-hmm. or the the little, like, heads-up kind of decoys where it's literally just a deer silhouette head, I think that little visual cue, we've talked about that with guys that are, are really good elk hunters sometimes, that it just takes that one final 
element to mm-hmm. add that that final hook set, so to speak. And I, I do think that it's a really, really useful tactic. One I don't do a whole lot of, but I know a lot of friend, people that have done it in the past. Mm. Yeah, it's one of those things for me, like like I said, some are more packable than others. But, yeah. like, you know, some, some of them can be a little bit cumbersome and, mm-hmm. like I said, I think highly effective. And if you have the right place or the right spot, you could, like I said, it could, it's just like that extra... You know, the deer have all these senses, right? Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden they've been to, you know, qualify the sound with the sight, you yep. know, and, and hopefully not the smell, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Then it's over. But. Yeah. One of the things that I haven't done decoys for quite a while, and a lot of this because I'm a full-time freelancer, so mm-hmm. I spend a lot of my time behind the desk mm-hmm. making a living. But um, the one thing I, I remember doing, though, and this is not my idea, it was Judd Cooney's idea, another outdoor writer from my era, or Judd always talked about the importance of a little motion on that decoy. Yes. And so he'd do things like just put little white feathers back, tape them on yeah. the tail so they just flutter in, in, the, in the slightest wind. Yeah. And maybe even put one out right, right down by the ears, just a little little white feather that would give That's that. That's smart. Yeah. Because yeah. otherwise, so many times, my experience with decoys is that every now and then, the bucks quite often come out and give it a good look. Yeah. The does would start snorting and snorting and snorting at them. Yeah. And, and it was just always, I always thought, well, is this... Helping or not. Yeah. You know, because if it, the bucks aren't in the mood, they aren't really going to come in. Right. But if the, and the does seem like they're, I've never had good things happen with does when they come out. And yep. So it, often they well, start Well, that's snorting. interesting to think about, too. Like, on the flip side of that, right? Like, sometimes I think it can be nice to have them keep looking. Right. right. They're like, well, it should be here. I'm going to keep coming. I'm going to keep looking. Mm-hmm. I've had that happen. Sometimes turkey decoys work. Sometimes they don't. I've had a, I've had them see the decoys and come right in. And I've had them see the decoys and turn around. Yeah. And you're yeah. like, I know you just saw those decoys. It's right. like, would you have kept coming yeah. if I didn't have that out there? I, I think the the mo- the element of adding that motion in the decoy, even if it's something as simple as taking toilet paper and putting it yeah. on on where the tail is, th- you know, or there's a, there's a other options out there like. Uh, there's Reinhardt actually makes something called the like the Loma. It's like a two dimensional. It actually like pieces together, and it's really it blows a lot in the wind. <laughs> okay, and uh, that's what you know the guys at the hunting public use that one all the time. And it's a really it's it's packable. It also like is very susceptible to wind movement. And I think the other you know interesting thing with decoy placement is how you actually set it up and mm-hmm. like. That was one thing that, you know, when I first started thinking about decoys, oh, put the decoy in the field out in front of you and come back and sit in the tree. But I think there's a lot of unique stuff with, like, the the train of thought that I've always heard of is to position it quartering towards you mm-hmm. because right. a buck especially is going to want to come in and do an about face. So if you have that decoy quartering towards you or, or almost facing you, even if he does approach from the rear, he's going to want to circle in and approach that thing head on, right. which is going to eventually put him in between you or the decoy and your position and give you a broadside mm-hmm. shot. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's interesting that little intricacies there – you know, I think it's it's another element that adds, if you're doing calling or anything like that, definitely something to keep mm-hmm. in mind. Gosh, I'd hate to be a deer. I know. <laughs> Just always trying to get killed. People are plotting against them all the time. <laughs> literally broadcasting a podcast for many listeners' ears on how yep. to kill you. Yep. <laughs> all the time. And the, the Writing ama- articles, making videos. The, the amazing thing is, with all that we think about it, talk about strategize with all the advancements and gear over GPS the years collars they're still hard to kill and there's <laughs> still so much more to learn <laughs> yep that there is yep yeah, one of the things charlie alshimer talked about 
in his writing every now and then was Charlie had served in Vietnam. And he would always talk about when once you're in that environment where you know you are, you know, people are trying to kill you. Yeah. He said, it just changes everything you do. You don't do anything with, without being deliberate about it. And so he always mm. figured that deer don't have that ability like we do to see in the future and know what we're, what we're, uh, what we, all that we have to lose, you know, mm. but they still, they want to live. Yeah. They right. don't want to die. Yeah. And then they quickly flip the switch from summer to, to fall. And I think anyone who ever lets that be forgotten, you know, they'll never, they'll never get a deer hunting. Mm-hmm. And I always go back to some of the different guys I've met over the years who I always call them predators because mm-hmm. they just, they're serious about this. I mean, they're, they're having fun, but they're just serious about it. And I realize their focus on that is much more intense than mine will ever be. And I guess my comment I make all the time to folks is just be happy with who you are. Quit, <laughs> quit, quit being jealous of this guy because, because so, many, so many guys resent the successful hunter. Yeah. They have this really insecurity or something that they, they run down guys like Bill Winky and Tony and these are folks we know that are... And I think, God, can't you just respect the fact that some people are really good at this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And, and that's I think that's all, all it is. is they, those guys understand what a challenge this is, how good these deer are at that, and they respect it so much. They, they just work at it so much more intently than the average hunter. And that's where I think there's a reason they're good. And it's not isn't by accident. You can, you can, you can occasionally, st- I've stumbled into some nice deer over the years just through persistence. But uh, I don't ever put myself in that category as being this, Guy like like Bill, yeah. I, I just think no, Bill and Greg and Greg Miller and some of these are folks I know. They wouldn't buy it for a second that I was in their league, right? You know, <laughs> I, I walk in their home and I and see what I, I've never been in Bill's home, but I've never been in Greg's home for that matter. But I, I just know from working with them over yeah. the years that these are guys I respect. I listen to them, yep. and when they give uh, when they give um, talks, I don't think Bill's into the talks though. Not as much anymore. Yeah, but Miller used to do a lot yeah. of talks. Yeah. I think at a certain, some guys didn't really always like his, I think he was just so super confident. Yeah, right. That I think some guys didn't Which like right. that. And I think, well, well yeah. I don't he, think he's can, earned it. You can't underestimate the uh, the importance of mm-hmm. persistence, though, either. I mean, you bring up... Well, that's huge. That's that probably mm-hmm. where those guys learned a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Pers- persistence and dedication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. And, and the cool thing, too, is there's so many, especially in today's day and age, there's so many people who are... Very, they have an expertise on, expertise on this specific niche, mm-hmm. and you know, like there's something that you can learn from a guy like Bill. There's something you can learn from a guy like, you know, somebody who might be really into hunting on the ground. There might be, you know, there's all these different people that you can look for. And if I think the people who are the best learners are the people that can take a little bit from a guy like Bill, take a little bit from mm-hmm. this person, and just apply that to their yeah. hunting situation. Another guy I know in the Madison area, his name is Jeff Delora. I don't think Jeff's ever made any money out of hunting, but you know, one thing I, one thing I do like about social media is it lets me see guys like uh, Eric and other folks and what they're up to. <laughs> and just the other day again, there was Jeff Delora once again with another big buck. Yeah, and I know a lot of his skill is he's he's a great people person. He's a hell of a hunter. He's also a great people person. He yeah. knocks on doors and kills bucks and small little area pockets of, of cover in these, you know, suburban yeah. stretches just west of Madison. Yeah. And, then, and yeah. Then, I mean, they get the access because he's a friendly guy. He's, he's presentable. 
And but yep. you know, but again though, you get talking to him, you realize this guy's a predator. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We had that discussion. Hi, with, I'm a predator. Would you let me <laughs> yeah, in your, yeah, would exactly. you let me in your yard? Yep. That, Taylor Chamberlain is another great example. Oh, that yeah, guy he talked does. about how he, he he lives in uh suburbs of Washington, DC. Hmm. And he hunts like like quarter acre, eighth acre, little like properties out of like he's you know, there might be a, tree forts yeah yeah that's what i was yeah, gonna say yeah. like a swing set you know yeah. and and he's truly hunting urban deer and it's 90 percent. i would would be curious what his thoughts are on this but i would imagine that a lot of his success is attributed to the fact that he can hold a conversation mm-hmm. because if he can't hold a conversation there's no way you're getting that access to the hunting ground mm. so yep. yeah it's interesting i'm guessing the first words out of his mouth when he knocks on a door and somebody answers the door is hey can i kill deer in your backyard yeah <laughs> <laughs> Probably but, a little more diplomatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whew. Wow. Great conversation, though. Pat, thanks a ton for Thank you. joining us and uh, talking about the rut and just deer hunting in general. I think the last one we titled with Pat was just a dang good deer hunting conversation, <laughs> and I feel like we're just going to have to title this one another dang good deer hunting conversation. Yep. Right, right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, appreciate it. And uh, oh, what do you think? Is there anything we should sign off everybody with, Pat? What do you think? Last Last thoughts? I didn't really come prepared for that, but um, that's all right. I yeah. put you on the spot. No, I, I really, I guess that my finished final thought would be, um, let's also not forget how much our hunting in this country is based around white-tailed deer. That's one thing I really worry about in our region. We're sitting there right now, where chronic wasting disease is a huge factor in this area. And I, as a guy who spent my entire life now, basically adult life working um, as an outdoor writer, I think how much this country has built upon the backs of the white-tailed deer hmm. and how mm-hmm. much is at stake if we don't aren't good stewards of it. And that's where I, I really I believe in the science. I don't believe in all the, the animosity, the anger, the stuff that people want you to believe because they think this is the way it is. I think, no, I, I'll, I'll throw in the scientists and, and stand by those guys and hope they can find a way to make this all work for us down the road because... This denying that chronic wasting disease isn't a problem. That when people deny it's a problem, I, I think you know they're not doing us any, any good. So I'll, I'll, I won't go any further than that right now. But it's a fantastic I, last. Call. I, I, yep. I do. Yeah. I do worry. I do worry more. about it. Very excellent last call to finish on. I I, I definitely agree with that, uh, and think it's something important for a lot of people to think on. So. Uh, yeah, with that said, everybody, hey, happy hunting and shooting out there. If you listen to this, I think MC Ryan's going to get it edited up and sent out right during the rut, so just get pumped. Yep. We're in it. Get in the woods. It's November. Get outside. Yep. Hope if it's feel- not November, you're probably thinking about <laughs> Buy that extra tag that you're thinking of. Yes. Oh, yeah. Good luck with that, Eric. <laughs> uh, all right. Thanks, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Bye. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show, maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like, so that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released, so that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you can take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So, again, everybody, thanks, and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.